Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Turn on the sermon recording if you haven't already and read God's word together. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God and when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Most gracious Father, as we come once again to your word, I ask that you would strengthen me by your spirit to preach that the gospel may be clear, open all of our ears, that we may hear and understand, that we may have certainty, not in ourselves, not in our righteousness, but in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So here we have the story of Zechariah being met by the angel Gabriel while performing his priestly duty and being told he will have a son who will have a special role in redemptive history. And as we read this story, three questions about waiting are answered for us. And these questions are going to be the kind of outline for our sermon. So first, for what were the people of God waiting? Second, why is waiting hard? Because it is. And third, why are we right to wait expectantly? For what were the people of God waiting? Why is waiting hard? And why are we right to wait expectantly? So first of all, let's, let's answer this first question. For what of the, were the people of God waiting? The first clue is, is right there in the opening words, the, the first line of the story. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. 
That, that gives us a huge clue as to what they were waiting on. The people of God were living in the promised land. They had come back from exile, but they were living under Roman rule. So they were in the promised land, but the promised land was occupied by the Romans. Remember, remember the history. Jerusalem was captured by Babylon in 587 B.C., Later in the 500s, Persia overthrew Babylon, so now it was under, under Persian control. And under the, the Persian king, they, they got to come back and rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple, but nothing was ever quite right. Eventually, the Greeks took over. There was a Hellenistic period for a long time. And then, around 63 BC, the Romans took over. Now, there were, along the way, various Jewish revolts. You may have heard of the Maccabean Revolt. But, but none of them were particularly successful, at least not for any sustained period of time. And so the, the Jewish people were living under occupied authority. They weren't getting to, to live under the law of God, under God's rule. That They weren't this theocratic nation any longer that they wanted to be. In fact, it's fascinating, when the temple was rebuilt after it was destroyed... You know what never is recorded as happening again? The presence of God filling the temple. That never happens again. Think, think about the, the profound difference that is from before the exile, when the presence of God dwelt right there in the middle of the promised land. So while there had been this return from exile and, and, and a re rebuilding of the temple and the wall, the return had not actually resulted in the reestablishment of the kingdom as they expected it to, as they hoped that it would. That never quite formulized. And so they were still waiting for that. They were still waiting for the reestablishment of the kingdom, for the fulfillment of the promises of David. That wasn't what they were seeing as Herod sat on the throne. The second clue of, of what they were waiting for comes in verses 10 through 17, where we read about the scene at the temple. The people are outside praying at the hour of incense, and the angel appears and tells John, I'm sorry, tells Zechariah that his prayer has been heard, and that his wife, who is barren and old, as he is old as well, that she will bear a son who will place significantly, as we read the story, significantly in the life of the people of God. Not your average baby is going to be born. Now, when we put all this together, it's not totally clear what Zechariah's prayer is that the angel says has been answered. There, there's a couple of options, and, and probably the, 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 the more popular option is that he had been praying for a child for some time. And, and, and the, the, the angel shows up and, and says, that's being answered. And, and, and we, we get that because it says, your prayer is answered, you're going to have a child. And so you can kind of put two and two together, right? It, it kind of adds up. But it could also be that what Gabriel is saying is being answered is not necessarily Zechariah's prayer specifically for a child, but the prayer that he was bringing along with the people as they all gathered the whole multitude outside at the hour of incense. Because remember, incense throughout the Bible is connected with the prayers of God going up to heaven, or the prayers of the people going up to God. So it could be that what Gabriel is saying is, at this point in redemptive history, the Lord is hearing your prayer, and, and he has been hearing your prayer, and at this point, he is going to act. 
And the beginning of his acting in answering your prayers of redemption, answering your prayers for the reestablishment of the kingdom, the beginning of his answer is you're going to have a son. Now, I think there's actually more in the text to, to kind of commend that understanding that God is answering these prayers of his people for redemption as they come at the hour of incense and all together pray to God and call out to him for his faithfulness. But what's interesting is John is actually an answer to both prayers. And so it really doesn't matter which way we go. In fact, I think at this point we should go both ways. Probably Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for a child. As they grew older, their their prayers may have have, have waned in faithfulness. Maybe not. But we know the people of God were praying for the redemption, praying for the establishment of his kingdom. And so in the end, John is probably an answer to both of these prayers. And that gives us another clue of what they were waiting on. That they were waiting on the redemption that had been promised to Israel all through the prophets. But there were also personal things that they were waiting on also. Personal prayers that they had been offering repeatedly, waiting for God to answer. Which brings us to the third clue about what they're waiting for. And that comes at the very end of today's passage, where where upon conception, this is what Elizabeth says. She says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, we need to understand something here, and, and this, this dovetails so beautifully with what we've been talking about, especially last week in the providence of God, and that is this. For no biblical reason, for no biblical reason, barrenness was considered a disgrace. Rachel uses the same language of, of taking away her reproach before people when she conceives Joseph. Remember, she was unable to have children, and Leah kind of gave her a hard time. There was this whole like conception battle, giving them, giving uh, the maidservants and, and all of that, right? And eventually, Rachel conceives Joseph. Hannah, Samuel's mother, was relentlessly provoked over her childlessness by Penina, the, the second wife, who was able to have children. And she calls out to God over and over. And he answers her. Here we read that Elizabeth bears the same cultural reproach because of her own childlessness. A reproachment that she was waiting to see removed and in fact was. So when we take all this together, what we find is that the thing that the people of God were waiting on was things to be made right. That's what they wanted. That they, they wanted the kingdom to be properly reestablished. They wanted and prayed for Israel to be turned back to God. They waited for pain in the present world to be undone. In short, the people of God at the turn of the millennium were waiting for redemption. They were waiting for the Messiah to come who would once again make all things right, establishing the kingdom of God forever, undoing and getting rid of death and sin and sickness and sorrow, answering all of our struggles and drawing people back to the true and living God for all creation. And isn't that what we are all waiting for as well? Not the first coming of the Messiah, but his return. 
Aren't we waiting for the kingdom of God, which was consummated with the incarnation, with the first coming? Aren't we waiting for that kingdom to finally be inaugurated with his second coming? Aren't we waiting for the rulers of this world who rage against the true and living God and at times against his people? Well, aren't we waiting for them to finally be toppled? Not by us, but by our king. Aren't we waiting for the true Israel, those united to Christ by faith, to be gathered up from every tribe and nation and tongue and turned once again to our Savior Jesus Christ? Aren't we waiting for the pain of the present world to finally be undone? Aren't we waiting for the day when we don't have to preach on providence and suffering? But we gather eternally to worship our Lord apart from those things. Indeed, that is what we are all waiting for. But for us, as it was for them, waiting is hard, isn't it? We can say all of that. We can say, oh, this is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. But it's hard. And as we read this story of Zechariah, we see it was was hard for them as well. So let's ask the second question. Why is waiting hard? Even when we know what it is that we're waiting on, why is it still hard? First, because we are waiting in a broken world. And that makes it hard. When we read verses 5 through 7, we find out a couple of things about Zechariah and Elizabeth that are very important. First of all, they're given given a glowing review. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So they're not us. Second, their description continues. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. They were past childbearing age. That ship had sailed. But in light of last week's sermon on suffering, I want to highlight from what we just read, in case we missed it, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were exceptionally faithful followers of God. They kept the law as they were supposed to while waiting on God to work out the redemption of his people. They weren't looking to their law keeping for redemption. But they were faithful Jews. Now, how do we know that they weren't being legalist about this? Well, a couple of reasons. In the passage that we're looking at today, we see two realities. One, they were still calling out to God for redemption. Two, they were still giving credit to God for his actions. They weren't taking any credit for themselves. They were giving all the glory right back to the one who was answering their prayers. But then in the rest of the story, in the coming weeks, we're going to see a few more things that that remind us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were no legalists. We look at Elizabeth's response to Mary in verses 41 to 51. You you can just listen. This is what she says. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold... When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That's no legalistic response to life. 
That's the response that rightly reflects the glory back to God, that rightly acknowledges he's the one that is at work, and I'm going to rejoice. Notice also how the birth of John is framed in verses 58 and verse 64. And her neighbors and all relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. They weren't rejoicing at their righteousness. They were rejoicing at God's mercy to them. See, remember, keeping the law implies that you need mercy. That's what separates faithful law-keeping from legalistic law-keeping. It implies that you need mercy. Why? Because sacrifices are built in. Sacrifices for sin are built in. The law was never meant to save. It was meant to, to show you that you need a Savior, that you need mercy. And then in verse 64... When John's mouth is open, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. This man who had been mute for nine months, plus a little bit, unable to speak, when he's finally able to, what does he do? He worships God. He blesses God. And then we see in his response in verses 67 through 79, which Jay's going to preach on in a few weeks, that he frames everything that he's been through, the birth of his son, all in terms of God's faithfulness to his promises. So they were no legalists. They were faithful Jews waiting on the promises of God to be fulfilled. When we add all this together, despite their known faithfulness, Elizabeth bore reproach from the people around her because of her barrenness, which was not God's punishment for a sinful life. They were faithful, and she was barren. Remember what we said last week, suffering in this life. If you were waiting in faith on Jesus, if you were united to him by faith, suffering is not God punishing you for sin. In this case, it was simply the fact that they lived in a broken world. It was a consequence of the fall, yes. Things don't work the way they're supposed to. But it wasn't punishment. But it did make waiting for her hard. Because people are mean. Even other people, other other Jews that should have known better, they're mean. We still live in a broken world, don't we? we? We know this all too well, most of us. The reality of living and waiting in a broken world often plays out in a number of ways. Sometimes we sin and have to live with the consequences, and that makes waiting hard. Sometimes we are sinned against and have to live with the consequences, and that makes waiting hard. Sometimes we are sinned against and have to live with the consequences, while the one who sinned against us neither repents nor seems to have to face any consequences. And that, as it did for Asaph, makes waiting hard for us. But sometimes, not because of any particular sin, things simply don't work the way they're supposed to in this world. And that makes waiting hard. When things don't work the way they're supposed to, we we often face accusations and reproach, don't we? We hear that that devilish voice telling us, this is all your fault. This is God being mad at you. This is him punishing you. And it's a lie. 
but it makes waiting hard. Or, or we hear that voice from even other believers. And I tried to put this, this line of thought to bed last week, but we hear that voice saying, oh, well, you better search your heart and figure out what you did, figure out why God's mad at you. No. Even in this story that we're looking at this week, when, when, when Zechariah is disciplined, he's told why. He wasn't just struck mute and then Gabriel's like, well, figure it out, man. He's like, no, you didn't believe. That's why this is, he, he didn't tell him to go search his heart. He told him what the problem with his heart was. But also sometimes when things don't work the way they're supposed to for long enough, or for enough people, we try to redefine how things are supposed to work, don't we? Waiting in a broken world is hard because it makes things feel uncertain. As an example, let's think about travel. If you have a flight plan that includes a scheduled layover, it's, you, it's not a big deal for you right? You, you, you read a book, you go to a, an airport restaurant or bar and, and happily pay two or three times what you would pay on the outside and you sit and watch bad middle-aged desperation flirting and enjoy every minute of it. Or you sit and you watch the, the busyness on the tarmac, you play with your phone, you take a nap, you watch people rushing about and, and come up with stories of like, oh, I bet they're off to this place or I bet this. And, and like, you have a blast with it. But if your flight is delayed, even if it's delayed the same amount of time as, a, as the, the aforementioned scheduled layover, the waiting is much harder, isn't it? Because there's uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen. And that's all you can think about. Even if there's not some like kid's birthday or, or important event or meeting that you might miss, even if that's not on the table, if you have all the time in the world the uncertainty makes the waiting difficult. It makes it so hard. And life in a broken world is full of uncertainty. Absolutely chock full of uncertainty. And it's hard. The second reason that waiting is hard is because we wait both as and with People who need to grow. Now, now this is kind of a subset of, of life in a broken world, right? But it's, it's worth mentioning. Part of the reason waiting is hard is because none of us are as we are supposed to be yet. As, as, as we're reminded in the New Testament, we're not yet what we will be. We struggle with faith, as Zechariah did. Think about that. He's, he's doing his service. He, he's finally been like drawn by lots. This probably would have only happened to him once in his life to get to go in and make this offering of incense. And he goes in and an angel meets him there and makes a promise to him. And, and we're going to see in a minute, it wasn't a, an unheard of promise. He makes a promise to him. And Zechariah doesn't believe him. And that's why he's He's mute. Because he doesn't believe what Gabriel, this angel from the Lord, said to him. His faith wasn't perfect. But think about that. That made waiting harder for him. Why? Because he couldn't tell anybody what was coming. 
He tried to like sign it out. Like, I mean, can you imagine all of a sudden you couldn't talk, but you don't know sign language and you're like, it's this kind of like perpetual game of charades. But, but instead of trying to communicate like get in the boat or something, you're trying to communicate an angel appeared to me and told me that my old barren wife was going to conceive and bear a son who was going to announce the coming of the Messiah. Like if you're playing charades and you pick up that card, you say pass. That's what he's having to try and communicate. And he can't. But here's the other side of that. It made waiting hard for everybody else too. Because he couldn't communicate. It made waiting hard for... His his need to grow in faith made waiting hard for him and for everybody else around him. We experience that, don't we? Our faithlessness makes waiting hard for us because we get in our minds, we get in our own heads, and, and we just absolutely freak out. But then that makes waiting for Christ to come hard for everybody else as well. See, waiting is hard because we live in a broken world, and, and we live in a broken world as and with people that need to grow. This means waiting requires immense amounts of grace with each other. Enormous grace as we all grow. I I need grace from you. Some of y'all have been waiting for 14 years, almost 15 years, for me to figure out how to be a pastor. One of y'all has been waiting for almost 20 years, 21 years, for me to figure things out about being a good husband. Some of y'all have been waiting for that a lot longer in your marriage. We're waiting for all kinds of things that are the result of us being people that need to grow and living around people that need to grow. And that makes it difficult. Third, sometimes we're waiting on the wrong thing. That's why we started answering this question. What is it that you're waiting for? Sometimes we lose sight of what we are to be waiting on and our attention turns to things this world offers but can't actually deliver. And we wait on things that cannot bear the weight of our waiting. And that makes it even harder. Because we know, even if I get this, I won't be satisfied. But oftentimes when we find ourselves in this posture, we quit waiting and start trying to secure redemption for ourselves, don't we? But perhaps this could be a fourth reason that waiting is hard, is that we're waiting the wrong way. A lot of times when this happens, we're, we're, what we are going after may be a good thing, but as, as Tim Keller often points out, when we make a good thing ultimate, it's just an idol, and it creates all kinds of problems for us. We're going after the next degree or credential or accomplishment to give us some sense of significance that it won't deliver on. We're going after the next relationship so we can feel loved and accepted that it won't deliver on. We're going after the next job so we can start over and maybe, maybe, hopefully not make the same mistakes, but it won't deliver. We're going after the next deal so we can make some money and and, and feel secure but it won't deliver. We're going after the next policy or election or elected official so things can at last be made right, and it won't deliver. So how do we know when we stopped waiting for the redemption of God and started trying to secure redemption for ourselves? 
I think there's three things that highlight this. We stop praying. We stop calling out to God to make things right. We stop casting our burdens on Jesus because He cares for us as we were instructed to do. And instead, we look inward and try to find the strength to sort things out. Second, we take command. I don't mean that we become a responsible person. Being a responsible human being, that's good, right? But, but we take command. I mean, I mean that we feel and think and talk and act as if whatever it is we are trying to secure is up to us to accomplish. We've got to change us. We've got to change the world. We've got to fix the church. We, 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 we have to do everything. And then we take credit. Rather than giving glory to God as we see Zechariah and Elizabeth do, we take credit for what we accomplished. Rather than living a life of gratitude, we live a life of pride, taking credit because we weren't actually acting in faith. So how do we know if we've made something ultimate? Well, if we've made something good ultimate, when, we, when we're attaching that which Jesus provides freely to the thing we're waiting on. When we attach our, our justification, our hope, our security, our identity, those things that Jesus came to give us, when we attach that to anything else, even if it's a good thing, we've run into a problem. We've made something good ultimate when we were attaching our hope, our security, our identity, that which Jesus promises to the thing that we're waiting on. That's why waiting is hard. We live in a broken world. We live as people and with people who need to grow. We often wait on the wrong things and we often wait in the wrong way. But our final question, why are we right to wait expectantly? That's what we need to know. I've already alluded to this, but the story we read here in Luke 1 should be, hopefully, a very familiar story to you. Not in the sense that you've read Luke's gospel or heard it in the Advent season or watched Charlie Brown or whatever. Like, it should be a familiar story because you're like, wait a minute. This isn't the first time this has happened in the Bible. Robert Alter, a, a well-known Hebrew scholar, calls this a type scene where, where there's, there's, there's a scene that plays out in different places in the Bible over and over and over. And, and one of the, the like, most attested type scenes is, is what's found here, which is birth in the face of barrenness. It happens repeatedly in the Bible. Sarah was barren, then she had Isaac. Rebecca, then she had the twins, Jacob and Esau. Rachel was barren, then she had Joseph. The wife of Manoah was barren, then she had Samson. Hannah was barren, then she had Samuel. The Shunammite woman was barren, then she had the son whom, whom Elisha raised from the dead. Elizabeth was barren, then she had John. Over and over and over, this happens. And each of these kids, save Esau is either the one through whom the covenant promises were passed to the new generation and or they prefigure the Messiah in some way. We struggle maybe with Samson, but what did he do? He worked deliverance for his people. He was a judge of Israel who brought deliverance. Well, what about the Shunammite woman's son? He was raised from the dead. He showed, he foreshowed what it was, what power God had to conquer even death, as he would do in Christ. 
So as we see this story unfold, we're right not to just read it and be like, oh, this is an incredible story. God answered a prayer. But we're right to, 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 to read it theologically as this scene that's repeated throughout the Bible and go, oh, my word. When a barren woman shows up pregnant, a redeemer's being born. Something big is happening. Somebody who is profoundly significant in the life of the people of God is about to arrive. And that's exactly what happens here. We could extend this this same type scene even to Mary. Yes, she wasn't barren biologically, but functionally she was. As someone who wasn't married, she shouldn't be having children. But what happens? She finds herself pregnant by the work of God in order to bring forth the Redeemer of the world. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful scene that we see happening here. But this story in in particular overlaps tremendously with the story of Abraham and Sarah. First, there's, the, of course, the issue of barrenness that we see repeated. But, but also in this story, like with Abraham and Sarah, they're old. It's not like Hannah or, or Rachel who are childbearing age. They're, like, that ship has sailed with Abraham and Sarah and with Zechariah and Elizabeth. The revelation of the child being born is associated with an act of worship. They're both told, don't fear. They ask how they're supposed to know this will come true. All these promises are made, and they want to know, like, how am I supposed to know that? There's this kind of same level of doubt in both of them. Blessings to all are announced through the promised seed of of, of Abraham and of Zechariah and Elizabeth. In both accounts, the response of the husband highlights their wife's age, which is kind of funny, but helps us see the overlap. So I've already said there's doubt in both stories. In, in both accounts, and this isn't always common, the wife's response is specifically recorded. So why do these two realities, the issues of this type scene and the overlap with Abraham and Sarah's story, teach us that we are right to wait expectantly? First, these stories of God's providence highlight that he has a plan that he is working out, and his plan not only will not be thwarted by something as daunting as infertility, but purposefully, repeatedly includes it. In other words, we see through these scenes in the story of redemption the certainty of God's promised redemption through Christ. Uncertainty is what makes waiting hard. But this story shows us the certainty of God's promises, that nothing can thwart them. Second, the overlap with Abraham and Sarah's story casts the whole incarnation narrative in covenantal terms. This is exactly what we're going to see over and over for the next three weeks. The incarnation at every turn is presented as the fulfillment, not of the Old Testament generally, though it is that, but specifically as the fulfillment of the covenants that God made with Abraham and with David. Why does that matter? If the incarnation is covenant fulfillment, then we are right to see the entire life and ministry of Christ in such terms, including what is yet to be, his consummation of the kingdom. In other words, this isn't just wishful thinking. This is us looking at the promises of what God has said he would do and waiting expectantly on that. 
Because his promises, his word are yes and amen and are fulfilled in Christ. So we wait with certainty. Because Christ did actually come. He was actually born to a woman who was functionally barren. He did actually come in fulfillment of all of these covenant promises. So one final question in closing. How then do we wait expectantly? Well, first we need to know what it is that we're waiting for and understand the certainty of it. But then we pray rather than turning inward. And instead of doing that thing where we're like, okay, I've got to to buckle down, I've got to figure it out. What can I find in me that can solve this problem? We turn to God and call out to Him. Second, we trust rather than take command. Rather than trying to figure out how can I command this situation? How can I fix it? How can I come up with a plan? How can I, how can I, how can I? We turn to God, we call out to Him, and we trust him admitting I don't know what to do here maybe admitting I don't know how to make it through the day and we trust him I love in in Luther's small catechism this is how he teaches us to pray in the morning when you get up make the sign of the holy cross and say in the name of the father and the son and of the holy ghost amen Then, kneeling or standing, repeat the creed in the Lord's Prayer. If you choose, you may also say this little prayer. I thank thee, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, thy dear Son, that thou hast kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray thee that thou wouldst keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please thee. For into thy hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let thy holy angel, the Holy Spirit, be with me, that the wicked foe may have no power over me. Amen. Then he gives this instruction. Then go joyfully to your work, singing a hymn like that of the Ten Commandments or whatever your devotion may suggest. Give yourself to God and trust Him. And then He tells us how to end the day. In the evening, when you go to bed, make the sign of the Holy Cross and say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. In other words, frame your day with the Trinity. Then, kneeling or standing, repeat the creed in the Lord's Prayer. If you choose, you may also say this little prayer. I thank thee, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, thy dear Son, that thou hast graciously kept me this day. And I pray thee that thou wouldst forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into thy hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let thy holy angel, that's the Spirit, let thy Holy Spirit be with me, that the wicked foe may have no power over me. Amen. Then he gives this instruction. Then go to sleep at once and in good cheer. And you may say, well, that sounds really simplistic. And that's the point. We call out to God, and rather than trying to take command, we trust ourselves to Him. Then we give thanks rather than take credit. That's how we wait expectantly. Just as Zechariah and Elizabeth did. They didn't get it perfect, he was mute for nine months. But he called out to God. He trusted God, and he gave thanks. That's how we wait expectantly for the coming of Christ. And we need to know that, because waiting is hard. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for how it teaches us to wait. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that there's something worth waiting on. We thank you for the certainty that we have. We thank you that we can call out to you, that you are trustworthy, and that you are the one who does it all. And so we ask by your spirit that we might learn to wait well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.